Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we're going to take a whirl through three of the most interesting of the Pacific Standard Time exhibitions. As you probably know, PSTLALA is the Getty-funded series of shows in Southern California that look at Latin America and Latino art. First up, Memories of Underdevelopment, Art in the Decolonial Turn in Latin America, 1960-85. It's at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego through February 4th, 2018. The exhibition shows how artists responded to Western investment in Latin America and to the inevitable alliance with global capitalism that went along with it. Joining me to discuss memories of underdevelopment will be Julieta Gonzalez, one of the four co-curators of the exhibition. She's the chief curator of Museo Humex in Mexico City. Next, I'll talk with Adela Goldbart, one of the four artists in Prometheus 2017, Four Artists from Mexico Revisit Orozco at the Pomona College Museum of Art, and then we'll wrap up the show with Los Angeles County Museum of Art curator Wendy Kaplan, the co-curator of Found in Translation, Design in California and Mexico, 1915 to 1985. I'll introduce each of them and their exhibitions more thoroughly as the show continues. First, Julieta Gonzalez, after the break. This fall, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Radical Women, Latin American Art 1960-1985, including more than 280 works created by 120 artists and collectives from 15 different countries. The exhibition highlights the contributions of Latin American, Latina, and Chicana women to contemporary art. Radical Women is part of Pacific Standard Time LALA, an initiative of the Getty with arts institutions across Southern California exploring Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. Radical Women, Latin American Art, 1960-1985, on view September 15th to December 31st at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, presenting Cindy Sherman, Imitation of Life through December 31st. Organized by the Broad in Los Angeles, this expansive survey of over 100 works makes its only appearance outside L.A. at the WEX. From Sherman's iconic untitled film stills through her most recent series of aging divas from the silent film era, Imitation of Life highlights the artist's engagement with cinema and celebrity and her career-long investigation of the influence of mass media on identity and ideas about women. The exhibition is accompanied by a star-studded audio guide featuring the voices of Miranda July, John Waters, Molly Ringwald, and more. And it closes a calendar year in which every artist featured in the Wex Galleries is a woman. For more information about the Wexner Center's programming, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. Julieta Gonzalez, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for inviting me. As I tried to describe in the introduction, this show looks at Latin America and how its economic development during the post-war decades was driven by, motivated by, and informed by ideas and capital that came from substantially outside the region. Before we kind of get into how artists engage with that and show that, I thought it might be a good idea to kind of get into the title of the show a little bit. What is underdevelopment? What does that what, what does underdevelopment mean? So underdevelopment means different things to different people. And the show actually tries to elucidate 
that double meaning because for dependency theory, which was this body of theory in the field of uh, political economy that emerged in the late 60s, actually underdevelopment was actually necessary to the politics of developmentalism or was a side effect or a byproduct. So even though these rhetorics were designed to fight underdevelopment, they were just basically perpetuating it at least according to dependency theory. And interesting thing about dependency theory is also that many of the writers and thinkers or economists and sociologists who who were articulating it had actually been part of the CEPAL, which is the Comisión Económica para América Latina, or the Economic Commission for Latin America, which has it has its headquarters in Chile, in Santiago. Uh, the building is actually represented in the exhibition. And then suddenly they, at some point, began rethinking, you know, the fact that these policies were really just perpetuating a situation that had been implemented since the colonial period, so to speak. So, and that we were enter- entering this kind of neo-colonial period. And, and Gunder Frank who was not a CEPAL affiliate, but he wrote the the main body of dependency theory. He calls it the development of underdevelopment. So that's the broader context against which this show is set. And for me, it was important to try to go beyond certain revisions that had already been made in the field of art history and of exhibitions of what has been called Latin American conceptualism and kind of just locating it as conceptualist practices. But I thought there was more things to be explained in terms of this conceptualist turn and that it responded to very directly to this situation of development and underdevelopment. And in fact, it was so. And the research yielded many substantial proofs of this argument. For example, the CAIC, which is also very largely featured in the show, Central Arte y Comunicación from Argentina. This is an association founded by industrialists from Argentina called Jorge Glusberg. And basically it was an operation that was also financed by him, but where he gathered a group of artists in the 1970s and 80s. And most of the texts refer to the situation of dependency, to the idea of the third world, and also to underdevelopment. So it is a very explicit reference and then, for example, Elio Itisica, in his catalog for Nova Objetividad Brasileira, a show that he organized in 1967, actually starts his essay for the catalog saying, asking what kind of avant-garde practice can there exist in the context of an underdeveloped country. So for me, it was also important to include a little slice of Nova Objetividade, and that's why also the inclusion of Oiticicas Penetrable, which he first did for for that show, and then also works such as the one by Antonio Gias, The Caixa das Baratas, The Cockroach Box by Lija Pape, and uh, Lindoneia by Rubens Gershman were all in the show. There's a little discrepancy about the Antonio Gias, and Antonio himself doesn't really know because he was away for a few months in Europe. And they said that someone, you know, that Oitizica just came to his house and grabbed the work, and then there was no docu- documentation of the show, and he never saw it. In some sources, they say it's the one I have, which is Os Restos do Heroi, and others, they say it was Nota sobre a Morte Entrevista. Both are works from the same year with very similar 
formal configurations as well. So I think the show presents artists engaging with those ideas with unusual clarity. But before we move into more specific examples, is there a specific moment at which artists really turn to these ideas, an instigating event, or is it just kind of a more gradual thing that happens over the course of of the 60s and 70s? Well, I think, for example, in Brazil, there is a specific moment, and it's during the government of João Goulart between 61 and 64. And it's interesting also because this show, or at least my attempt, was to help account for significant shifts in the language of these of some of these artists who had been actually affiliated to concrete traditions of the 1950s in Brazil, such as the Grupo Frenchi, Ruptura, and then also the neo-concrete movement, and how suddenly their language changed in a very radical way. And this is particularly the case in the show of Elio Di Sica and Lija Papi, who also made very explicit the reasons for this shift in, in their writings. Alicia Papa wrote a thesis in 81, long after the fact, uh, where she explains this kind of transition, her hiatus from art in the mid-60s, and how during that period she was very involved with the notion of popular culture. So in Brazil, there was a turn in that period, which is also very political and ideological, and it had to do with the way artists supported the politics and the policies instrumentalized by João Goulart, which actually ended in a coup d'etat in 1964. And they organized, many artists were affiliated to the CPC, which were Centro Popular de Cultura, which were these grassroots organizations that promoted popular or folk art. Ferreira Goulart, who was the writer, main writer of the Manifiesto Neoconcreto, he was very involved in the CPC and actually really distanced himself from any kind of involvement with geometric abstraction and, and that kind of modernist language. So this Getty project was basically a research project to help account for that shift, which had not really been accounted for in those terms, and to go back to the writings of that period, especially to Ferreira Goulart, who wrote this article in 63 called Cultura Post en Questão, or its culture called into question, literally, from the Portuguese. And where he actually talks about the problem of illiteracy, which also appears in the show, and how artists were also dealing with this uh, through radical pedagogies and, and also critiques of the education system. Paulo Freire had a big involvement in the Goulart government. He was the superintendent of education for the northeast of Brazil, so I think in Brazil, you can really find a very articulated shift. I don't think in other countries it happened that way. So it's, and it's not possible to generalize, you know, for all of Latin America. I think each country had very different circumstances. A lot of them had the military dictatorships, right wing. But then Peru, for example, had a left wing military dictatorship between 68 and 75. So... I think the responses varied, but I think also there were some common denominators. And one was this incorporation of the vocabulary of the popular from an avant-garde position. And I think that is a very significant shift. It's also because it really aims to break from a so-called imported tradition or from the modernist canon, so to speak. As you say all that, 
I can remember specific parts of the show. When, when, when I say this show is a, a clear presentation of geographies and, and a time and an engagement with ideas, yeah, it, it really, really is. The show starts with a gallery or two that feature pictures by the French-born photographer Marcel Gautereau. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Another photographer, Leo Matisse. And, and these are pictures that really kind of set the stage for everything else we're going to see. What do we see in those pictures and how do they kind of provide a baseline for, for what we see in the galleries on either side? Well, so it was very important for me to first, how, as exactly as you say, set the stage for the discussion. So these images were very important to help situate the viewer in what that rhetoric of developmentalism meant, how it was in instrumentalized, but how it was also manifested in a very clear way through architecture, urban development, etc. The city of Brasilia, of course, is the most emblematic project of these, but also many cities, at least the larger metropolises in Latin America, experienced a period of growth and modernization during this period. And it was all made very concrete by the by this modernist architecture, which is now an outstanding feature of most of our cities. I'm from Venezuela, and I grew up with this. For example, the university in Caracas was a project of integration of the arts, which is essentially a modernist project. Those are the Leo Matisse photographs. Yes, yeah, some of the Leo Matisse. For example, the... Um, Aula Magna, which is the auditorium of the university, has the largest Calder installation in the world, which are actually the acoustic panels of the concert hall. So, you know, I grew up with this image of a modernity that, that was really swiftly decaying, well, up to the point where my country now is really submerged in the 19th century. Anyhow, for me, it was very important to also to not feature these photographs as documents because they are photographs by noted photographers in themselves. And I think also their way of seeing this is very telling in a way. So I also chose images that only presented, especially in the case of Brasilia, the city in construction. It's like a sort of phantom-like presence. Oh, there's some skepticism there, yes. <laughs> so oh, I just chose these images where it just seemed like this mirage. And of course, also of the Sepal building where it's reflected on the lake. I wanted to stress that idea of development and modernity as mirage, as also as phantasmatic or phantom-like appearances. So it was very important to set the stage in that sense. It's not just documenting that, but it's really also highlighting the fact that this modernity was very fleeting and very ephemeral because basically the social policies that would have had to be instrumentalized were really never set in place. And because, again, this is just a mirage that only perpetuated under development as proposed by the later dependency theory. So, yes, it does set the stage. And then I have also photographs by Tomas Farcas, who is also featured in other sections of the show with the films from Caravana Farcas and by Peter Shaya. And so those are the ones on Brasilia. And then from Mexico by Armando Salas Portugal, who also took to the task of documenting this process of modernization in, in Mexico City. 
we see artists chasing those phantoms in the other galleries of the show. As you mentioned a moment ago, it's impossible and irresponsible, really, to... It is possible to oversight the regional, shall we say. But there are, are two strategies that maybe don't dominate the show, but that are ever-present through the show. Artists across the show, across the geography of the show, across the time period of the show, are interested in making text-based work, and they're interested in making map-based work or work that uses, refers to, cuts up represents maps in one way or another. Why do you think text-based work and map-based work was so popular at the time? I have a lot of maps in the show. And for me, it's something that I really don't really address in the catalog text, but I did in some of the guided tours I gave because I, I wrote such a long text that I couldn't possibly also integrate that discussion in there. I think overall in this tension between development and then the development, modernity and coloniality. If we talk in other terms, there's a tension between space and place. Of course, when you see the history of colonization in the new world, of course, this is also the beginning of a new era for cartography. And cartography is just a representation of the world, but it's one that aims to make it kind of an abstract representation because it's just a, proje a projection as well. So the line of Tordesillas, which basically divided, I mean, the Americas or the, his the Spanish Americas, well, the Spanish Americas from the Portuguese America, was just this arbitrary line, you know, that kind of divided South America in half. And disregarding the ethnicities, the peoples who lived there. So the map is always thinking in terms of, of space, Whereas landscape, and when you think of the notion of the people, you're thinking place. And I wanted to highlight that, and in a way, like Elda Serrato's maps, begin introducing the notion of the people. And, of course, that's where you get all these indigenous rights movements, land rights movements that are being mobilized, because basically, by the people who are thinking of these developmentalist policies, they're just thinking of Latin America in the same terms as the colonizers with the Tordesillas line as a map, not as a landscape, which has certain particularities. And so I wanted to highlight that that's in a way you can account for, so, for the presence of the map in the works of so many different artists, such as Annabella Geiger, Horacio Zavala, Elda Serrato, and with very similar operations of deformation, of shifting land masses, but again, just saying this is a representation crafted by those who colonized us in a way. So, so for me, it was very important to introduce that subject in that section, because in the show, there are two breaks. Once you enter this stage for that mirage of development, you have two options. And those are two main ruptures, which are the ones that structure the exhibition. So one is the formal one, the rupture from the modernist canon. And the other one is one where artists, is an ideological one, where artists are thinking of going back to these colonial histories, revising them and representing them using the systems of representation that were used to instrumentalize this process of colonization. And as for the prevalence of text-based work? When I presented this exhibition, a couple of people told me, it's just going to be all this dry 
exhibition of documents with text-based work that you have to read? And I said, no, it will have a lot of things, you know, <laughs> and it will be engaging in different ways. And actually, in that section where the maps are, there are very few text-based works. I mean, with the there's the Juan Downey Make Chile Rich, which is well, it has three sentences or four, and it is text-based, but it has an object, a little sack with the nitrate of sodium from Chile. And there is quite a bit of text-based work, and of course, in the Caic section. Well, I think conceptual strategies, of course, relied on text, and but I don't think text-based work is so prevalent in the show. I mean, it, even if it is, and then we have like the manifesto by Artur Barrio, and then things that actually circulated as text and were never meant to be artworks, but we're presenting them in the context of the show, kind of not as objects, but things for people to take away, like the Estetica um, da Fome, which is the, manif- the aesthetics of hunger by Glauber Rocha. So for example, well, that's text-based, but it's not a work of art. But I think also narrative is important, and that's also why I included film and why I thought film was essential to this history as well. And that's why that section with the map starts with a scene from Glauber Rocha's Terra en Transe, a film from now is called his trilogy, which is Terra en Transe, Deus y Jabo, La Terra do Sol, which is Black God, White Devil in English. And Terra en Transe is Entranced Earth, and the other one is Antonio das Morches. So this is the films that are really perhaps the essential ones in his filmography, even though, well, for others, for many people, where he laid out his plan for his idea of cinema novo and tricontinental cinema. So also there's the film narrative as well, which is harder to appreciate because then you'd have to see the films. But when we show the exhibition here in Mexico, we're going to have two weeks of screenings of the films. So people will have the opportunity to see the films in their entirety and I'm organizing them by cycles, you know, different thematics, etc. There's also a line that runs through the show that is almost an embrace of the absurd. I'm thinking of two pieces in particular, Leon Ferrari's Birdcage from his Excrements series and Juan Downey's Anaconda Map of, of Chile. I don't mean this as a weird question, but is it merely a coincidence that here are two prominent artists both choosing animals as a way of addressing specific ideas? Or was there a reason, an historio, you know, a history-rooted reason why they were interested in using animals in their work? In the case of Juan, it was sort of a very literal and non-literal in, in at the same time way of alluding to the Anaconda Mining Company in Chile. This work, he actually did it for the first time for an exhibition at the Center for Inter-American Relations in New York, which is now the America Society. As you know, America Society, or as it was known by its former name in the 70s, was actually uh, part of the philanthropic mission of the Rockefeller family. It still is. So he thought to make a critique of that because everyone in Chile knew that the Anaconda Mining Company which had major interest in the copper mining industry in Chile, was owned by the Rockefeller family. So the anaconda was that direct allusion. So the way he found to do it was by introducing a live anaconda onto the map of Chile with all the connotations that an animal like that can have as well, you know, because they 
well, I mean, I know people who are super scared of snakes. I mean, they don't scare me at all, especially if they're locked up, even though that one escaped. <laughs> wait, what? Wait, 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 what? It escaped? The anaconda escaped the other day from the work. Oh, my. In San Diego? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they found it on top of the plexi because apparently when they fed her, they they forgot to, you know, lock one of the screws and she was able to lift. She just went a you know, she she got out of the cage. <laughs> and so when Juan presented that work at the CIAR in, in the 70s, they immediately caught on to the, you know, his play of words. And they said the snake could not be exhibited. So, you know, he just saw it as an act of censorship at that time. In the case of Ferrari, well, I think it has to do also with his very fine sense of humor and you know he had a campaign against hell and he wrote to the pope in the 1980s saying that hell should be elim eliminated from all religious literature because it was just an instrument of fear and he was always an artist who was very critical of the church from the very beginning since the 1960s he was making work that really enraged you know not only re religious but also political elites who were defended these moral and religious values of the Catholic Church. So when he did this work, basically it was a very humor, humorous ploy because he just had the little birds in that very pretty cage with the flowers just shit on top of representations of hell from historical landmarks. Yeah, representations of Catholic painting. Exactly. So again, he was always trying to be quite blasphemous. He had a series of drawings, actually, in the, from that same period called Paredejes, for heretics, again, which was censored. And he produced many works in that direction during the 1980s when he was in exile in Sao Paulo. His son was killed by the military in Argentina in the 70s, so he went to Sao Paulo. So he went from one dictatorship to the other one, but the other one was, in a sense, softer than the Argentinian one. But, but then he produced those works when he was in Paredes, for example, and other religious works or works that critique religion and Catholicism in particular during his exile there in Brazil. The use of animals, I guess, maybe they, I don't know, really, I can't account for a specific. Juan Downey used animals another time. He did a work called About Cages where he had canaries. And the work that actually spoke about Political, political Chilean prisoners in Chile and liken them to these canaries in a cage. Well, and then we also have in the show Caixa das Baratas by Alicia Pape, which was a work for Novo Brasileira, with, where she presents these cockroaches, you know, in a very geometric fashion. And then Oitisica also has a parrot in the Tropicalia. The exhibition is Memories of Underdevelopment, Art, and the Decolonial Turn in Latin America, 1960 to 1985. It's at the MCA San Diego um, until February 4th. Julieta Gonzalez, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much. Focus, Catherine Bradford, is on view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition features all new work. Bradford is known for her vibrant palette and eccentric compositions. While simple in form, her ongoing series of nocturnal paintings exhibits a range of colors such as orange, neon green, and pink violet that glow and illuminate the otherwise dark scenes. 
Her recent works revisit several of her favored motifs, such as ships and swimmers, traditional and enduring subjects seen throughout art history. Through January 14th, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents The Glamour and Romance of Oscar de la Renta, an exhibition celebrating the illustrious life and career of the renowned fashion designer. Nearly 70 ensembles sourced from de la Renta's corporate and personal archives, the archives of French label Pierre Balmain, private lenders, and the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston are featured. On view through January 28th. Visit mfah.org slash de la Renta for more. Welcome back. Next up, Adela Goldbart. Her work is included in Prometheus 2017, Four Artists from Mexico Revisit Orozco. It's at the Pomona College Museum of Art through December 16th. That's this Sunday. The show, which was organized by Rebecca McGrew, features work that addresses Pomona's great 1930 Orozco mural, Prometheus. Goldbard is a Rhode Island and Mexico City-based artist whose work addresses national histories, especially the history of the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. She is shown extensively in Mexico, but also in the United States and in Austria. Adela Goldbard, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much for having me here. Had Jose Clemente Orozco been of interest to you before you worked on this Pomona show, or did they bring him and particularly the Orozco on their campus to you, and did that instigate an interest? I mean, Jose Clemente Orozco and uh, all of the other muralists from his era are really important for uh, Mexicans and for uh, Mexican art history. So we're probably all of us, especially artists, acquainted with his work. For me, his political interest in art, no, his political art has always been enchanting. And especially since he was very interested in being critical about the situation of Mexico in which he lived in, which is something that connects with my work. But it was definitely the curators at the, at, at the Pomona College Museum of Art that brought him into my attention again. And especially going there and seeing the mural that he painted there, Prometheus, then that definitely made me, you know, look into his work again, probably, and look at, at his work from a different point of view, from a different stance. What about the mural there at, at Pomona? Prometheus 1930 is the date on it. It's in what is now a dining hall on Pomona's campus. It, it, it visually dominates a dining hall on, on Pomona's campus. What, what about it caught your eye and, and captured your interest? I mean, it's a Prometheus that's giving out fire, right? So fire as, as knowledge, you know? So it's a metaphor of giving out knowledge. That's why it was painted in a college campus. So I guess for me, that's very visually intriguing. And then, of course, when you read the story behind it and how it was received in different moments by students, I guess that was also very interesting for me, you know? How critical sometimes students were about the mural itself or how a lot of contradictions happened during different times around the mural. Speaking of fire, you've been making work with, of, and about fire for a number of years now. Where does your interest in fire come from, given that it predates your engagement with, with this Roscoe, of course? So probably my, my engagement with fire comes also, you know, for me, destruction is a very powerful tool for memory. I see, I see this destruction as a strategy to create collective memory. So one of the ways in which I've been working lately is using fire as a means of destruction. And this definitely connects with the research I've been making about traditions that deal with uh, ephemeral structures that are destroyed 
by exploding them or burning them. No? So specifically, I've been very interested in the burning of Judas. So that's a tradition from Catholic origin that came to Latin America with the Spanish conquest, but that it took its own characteristics depending on the country where it's situated. So specifically in Mexico, where I've been working and in, in one of the communities where I've been working, which is called Tultepec. So these, these and other traditions are very important inside of the community to generate criticality and collective memory, and also to, in a way, escape from official history. So I see these traditions of destruction through fire as a way of resistance. So I guess that's kind of my main interest in them. And just to be clear, the things that you're setting on fire or are exploding into flames are, so far as I know, entirely things you've built. Yeah, this, these are effigies that I built in collaboration with different groups of craft makers. So for the show in, in Pomona, I invited Artsumex Collective. So four of them, four of the members flew all the way to California. So we went through all the process of getting them visas and uh, bringing them to California so we could build together for three weeks during the summer. And so for this specific show, we built a microbus, which is an iconic public transportation vehicle in Mexico. So it's like a small bus. And we also built a Mexican semi-desert landscape. So we built some cacti and some trees. And the idea was to put all of this together for the performance, where the microbus was going to be used to reenact a highway blockage. Let me let me back up just for a moment. It might be useful to an audience that is in the U.S. and in other places to have an understanding of how buses are sometimes used by various entities in Mexico to block roads, whether whether it's by the state or by by narco traffickers. How does how does what is the context for that that informs your use of the microbus? So this is the second time I use a microbus for work. Actually, the, the first video I made, which was made in Tultepec, is part of the show at the Pomona College Museum of Art. And this is the second iteration. I'm interested in how not only microbuses, but buses in general, have become tools for uh, resistance in a way, because many different organisms, when they're protesting, they use them to block usually highways, but also other kind of roads. So it's a means of getting attention from the government towards what they're asking for, right, or what they're protesting against. But at some moments, it has also been used by drug trafficking and uh, drug dealers to block highways for different reasons, which is mainly to avoid the police or the military to get to the place where they're like dealing or doing something. So it's interesting to see how the same strategy can be used in very, very different ways for very different purposes. But for me, it's also interesting to see how, although these two, you know, these two, the two reasons for using them are very different. When you read about it in the media, sometimes the media doesn't do that clear distinction between the two. So uh, all of my work comes initially from analyzing how the media deals with all these kind of events that sometimes relate to violence produced by drug trafficking and uh, the drug wars that we've been living in the last decade. And sometimes it's, it has to do with, uh, with protest and uh, social protest. So for me, it's really important to analyze how the media manipulates information and sometimes put all of these things together as if they were part of the same conflict when they're not. Before we get to how you set things on fire and explode them in your work, you mentioned landscape and how you often in recent years have built out representations of the Mexican landscape that is then used in your work and often set on fire in your work. 
why landscape and what is kind of forgive the phrase your source material for that landscape how how what what filters your engagement with landscape well i mean that actually like goes all the way back into the beginning of my career when i started as a photographer actually i was very interested in uh making interventions into the landscape so i was usually i mean and this is way back when i was doing like really smaller productions nothing to do with what i'm doing right now so it was usually just me and maybe a friend or a couple of friends. And uh, I usually created ephemeral sculptures or structures. And then I intervened the landscape, like placing them inside of the landscape and uh, to photograph them. So I was very interested in how objects, misplaced or recontextualized objects, could change the landscape and transform the idea of the landscape in our minds. I guess I started working with the landscape like really long ago through that kind of work. And lately, I've been interested in thinking about how the landscape itself is transformed by events. So thinking specifically about uh, violence and the drug wars in Mexico, like thinking about how the landscape transforms by these events. And I'm thinking about how the, um, the military has to get rid of poppy seed fields, for example, or marijuana fields, and how that definitely alters the, the landscape itself. So actually, the landscape I decided to build for this performance is based on paintings by Mexican painters from what we call the Mexican pictorialism. So this is the 19th century, and this was an ideal landscape that was being painted. No? It's a moment when uh, painters were trying to define the Mexican landscape in a way. So uh, a lot of volcanoes, a lot of cacti, a lot of nopales, tunas were being painted to, to show this ideal Mexican landscape. So I'm trying to compare that ideal landscape with the non-ideal landscape that we'll, we're facing right now. So that's why I decided to to build all of these ephemeral figures based on those paintings. For example, Dr. Atl was one of my my important references for this for this work. So we've men I've mentioned a couple times that you you tend to blow things up. From where does your interest in fire and explosion come? Is it art historically rooted or does it come through through film and cinema or from somewhere else altogether? So I've always been interested in uh, special effects regarding film. I've always been interested in how things might need to be repeated for the camera, even though it takes like a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking about how, I don't know, when a car crashes in a movie, how was that made, right? Do they need to crash like several cars? Do they only do it once? I mean, of course, it, this connects to the resources that the film industry has. So from my, like in my work, I like to think about unrepeatable actions for the camera or for a live audience. So that's how I started like to get involved with destruction, not, not necessarily fire, but with destruction, for example, with the cars that are being destroyed in junkyards. So I have a couple of videos that actually narrate the destruction of cars, which can, can't be repeated. Like once you throw the car from a, from a crane that's 20 meters high, I mean, if it didn't work for the camera, then that's it, unless you have the resources to have another identical car and, and do the same thing again. So I guess that's one of the, the things that caught my attention originally about fire and destruction, like when I think about films, like how are these special effects per performed for the camera? But I have to say that my main interest might be coming from traditions from traditions that I've been researching in central Mexico and southern Mexico. So I already mentioned the burning of Judas, but there are other several traditions. For example, building castles of fire 
or building toritos during the, the pyrotechnics festival, like all of these traditions that have to do with building to destroy and destroy using explosives and fire. You know, if I could ask a question about the first part of that, about how, you know, the question of whether or not a filmmaker has limitless resources or a certain amount of resources to restage disasters for the purpose of getting it right on film. Is that a, are you consciously drawing a line between that and how the state has sort of unlimited resources or certainly enormous resources to conduct drug wars? I mean, probably what I, I didn't, I mean, until you say it right now, now I'm, I'm seeing like a connection, right? But I wasn't making the connection before that. I think I was mostly like interested in, um, you know, in reenacting, but in a way that cannot be restaged more than once, if that makes sense. Because I, I, I read a Q&A you did with a short one with Elena Scarpa, in which you said that you sometimes read government reports to inform or prompt your work, which as someone who reads a lot of government reports, I, I admire deeply. Yeah, actually, I've, I've read a, a bunch of uh, yeah uh, reports from the government, bo- both from the Mexican government and from the American government, because for other projects, I've been dealing with issues that deal with the border. Yeah, I have to say it takes a lot of time and you know attention because it's very a lot of technical information so you have to kind of dig into like the technicalities to actually like kind of grasp what's actually happening and i'm sure that that's a strategy right like for not having like a lot of people getting all of the information at once this this is going to be a slightly weird question but there 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 is you know as there is a certain aesthetic and aesthetics to fire and explosions are you entirely focused on the idea of fire and the idea of exploding things or or, or is the way it looks once you do it the way you blow something up or the way the fire happens as important as the fire happening Is, is 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 there a particular visual aesthetics or or effect that is important or is it just that you're blowing the thing up I mean, I have to say that I always think about uh, both things. For me, it's been very important to combine this precarious way of building, which is ephemeral, which is, you know, with uh, with cardboard, with newspaper, with uh, reeds, which is made to actually not last. And uh, combining that aesthetic, that precarious aesthetic, with like state-of-the-art cinematography and uh, like a very pristine way of documenting everything that's happening. So I always have in my mind this combination of, for example, when I when I build the pickup truck or the microbus or the facades for other videos, now I'm always like very interested in how these structures look through the camera once they're like uh, aestheticized by the by the all the cinematography tools that I use. So light lighting is very important for me, definitely. Slow motion as a strategy is also very important. And then everything else involved in the in the grammatics of, of film and cinema. So I'm definitely thinking about both things at the same time, like how it's going to look, you know, this explosion, how it's going to look in slow motion through this, like, you know, really well-lighted uh, scene. But that in combination to what fire for me means in the context of burning an ephemeral structure, which is a collective act of purging, purging evil, right? Because the thing behind the tradition of the burning of Judas and then became started as a like religious tradition and then transformed into a political event is the idea of embodying the traitor. 
to then explode it and burn it and get rid of it and what it embodies. So it's both things. For me, it's very allegorical in nature regarding the the idea of, of fire and how it's used to build, to destroy ephemeral structures, but also how it's documented through through film. Last year, so in 2016, you made a piece called Mission Accomplished, and it involved a lot of the elements we've been discussing, a built representation of landscape, the projection of video, and and fire and pyrotechnics. And so Mission Accomplished is a piece that refers to a phrase that has become iconic in both the United States and Mexico. In the United States, of course, George W. Bush used it to declare primary war aims in the Middle East to be concluded. And of course, all these years later, 14 years later, we're still there. And it's become iconic. The phrase, the, the phrase mission accomplished has become iconic in Mexico because the state used it to celebrate the, well, one of the captures <laughs> of, of the drug lord known as El Chapo. Is making those links between the United States and Mexico, maybe especially in the context of the drug war, important or interesting, or are you more interested in Mexico and less interested in the relationship between the two countries? I think that nowadays it's almost impossible to talk about the situation in in Mexico without talking about the binational situation. I think we cannot talk about specifically the, the war against drugs without talking about how the two countries are dealing with it. For me, it's always very impressive to think about how the media talks about all the violence in Mexico, which is definitely real, and we sense it, like we all sense it. I mean, this year has been one of the most violent years in many decades. And actually, the you know, the press is trying to hide it in a way, no, because no one talks about it being the, the most violent year in many, many years. But then it's also impressive to then see that once, you know, you cross the border to this side, then it's kind of like if everything disappears right? Like we don't know where the drugs go. We don't hear that much about violence related to trafficking. And of course, we all know that the drugs are coming to this side, right? So I think these are the kind of things that interest me and the kind of things that I want to talk about through my work. So definitely when I, even if if like the things that I'm reenacting are situated in, in Mexico, I think I try to connect them to what's happening on this other side of the border. And specifically for the performance that I did in California, I try to make that connection kind of at the end of the performance because the performance was, you know, this Mexican landscape and the reenactment of, of a blockade, of a highway blockade blockade with a with a microbus. But then by the end, after everything exploded and was destroyed, I decided to include as part of the soundtrack because there was also a, a really, really intense soundtrack going on while the performance was happening that was actually reenacting events that happened specific events that happened in in Mexico in 2016 but then at the end of the performance i played the it's a small world after all song you know that we listened to in the disney you know, and that's where the actually that's where the title of the performance comes from a world of laughter a world of fears so of course it's ironic it also connects because when you go to that disney ride you also see like this representations of like stereotypical representations of the world and the and traditions and culture so i tried to connect those representations and embodiments with the ones i was making you know that the ones i made for the performance which are completely different that's why i asked there are so many relationships between your you know what's in your work and 
things that are part of, of the American tradition, landscape, examining the influence of an artist's engaging with uh, media, you know, especially recently in, in America's troubled climate of the present. Adela Goldbard, thanks so much for speaking with me. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents The Medici's Painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu for more. Photographer Robert Polidori, known for his images of architecture and human habitats, created a series of images of the Getty Center shortly before it opened in 1997. On the occasion of the center's 20th anniversary, the exhibition Robert Polidori, 20 Photographs of the Getty Museum features captivating behind-the-scenes views of the building and galleries as objects from J. Paul Getty's painting, sculpture, and decorative arts collections were being installed. Learn more about this exhibition and other ways to spend the holidays at getty.edu slash 360. Welcome back again. On our third and final segment this week, Los Angeles County Museum of Art curator Wendy Kaplan joins me to discuss Found in Translation, Design in California and Mexico, 1915 to 1985. The exhibition shows how a binational conversation that included art, architecture, film, and design all informed the development of a distinct Californian and Mexican style. Like the MCASD exhibition that we talked about at the beginning of the program, this too is one of the very best PST shows. Kaplan co-curated it with Stacy Steinberger. It's on view through April 1st next year. The show's excellent catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for 42 bucks. We'll have a link to that, of course. Wendy Kaplan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. The story of your show, Simply Speaking, is how late Spanish colonial, Mexican, and California cultures have influenced each other as shown via art, decorative arts, architecture, and more. So the show starts with the beginning of Spanish influence, or maybe the beginning of California's willingness to receive Spanish influence, very much a one-way influence. It starts in the mid-1870s. With whom does it start, and what influence does his work have? Well, I'm assuming you're referring to our mutual hero, Carlton Watkins. Imagine that. <laughs> about whom you know far more than I, but it's an important part of the show that even before the Panama, California Exposition in San Diego, which is how people usually think of the start of the Spanish colonial revival, 1915, there was a great interest in the Spanish past of the California missions. Carlton Watkins was either the first or among the first to record that in the late 1870s. And in fact, it was these photographs 
showing the missions mostly in a very dilapidated state that led to a movement to restore the missions. But it's very interesting and an important part of the show that the great civic leaders, the ones who were behind the Panama, California Exposition, for example, rejected these more modest mission styles because as part of their boosterism and trying to show that California was could compete on its own with the more established powers of the East Coast and the Midwest, they wanted a more elaborate style, the Spanish Baroque style, which is called Chirigoresque and is an extremely ornamented style. And what's so interesting is that this style was never in California. Carlton Watkins actually documented what was here. Architects like Irving Gill took that as an inspiration, but Gill's own more modest and more modern depictions were rejected in favor of this exuberant, elaborate, and highly decorated iteration of the Spanish past. Yeah, it's almost like those more exuberant decorations came from the altarpieces in those Spanish mission churches rather than from the buildings themselves or the way the outside of the buildings looked, because the altarpieces inside were pretty darn baroque. (laughs) That is true. But in the case of Bertrand Goodhue, who was chosen as the architect who would be the artistic director of the Panama, California Exposition. For his signature California building, he specifically chose a church in Puebla, Mexico. And one other point that I think most people don't think about is when they talk about the Spanish colonial revival, so much of it came directly from Mexico, not from Spain. Many architects, such as George Washington Smith, went to Spain, particularly southern Spain, but Mexico was so much nearer. And one of the things we want to share with the audience that visits LACMA is how much Mexico at the time was elited, just left out of the story in favor of this romanticized view of the Spanish past. I think it's really important for people to know that California was a poor outpost of the Spanish Empire. And then, of course, from the Mexican independence of 1821 till 1848, we were part of Mexico. And it is fascinating that in Santa Barbara, it's part of the El Paseo district, the street has always been called a street in Spain when it's an exact copy of a street in Cuernavaca, Mexico. About 20 or 30 feet into your show, we get the explosion of the idea of Mexico's arrival in California, mostly in the persons of the Mexican modernists who began to make work in and even move to California. And so with with, with their arrival, suddenly there's a two-way cultural conversation who were a couple of the major Mexican modernists that are included and represented in the show? Well, 
it's very important to understand the consequences of the Mexican Revolution from 1910 to 1920, which was the reason why so many Mexican artists, architects, etc., crossed the border, at least temporarily. One of the most important was not actually an artist himself, but Jose Vasconcelos, who after the revolution became the secretary of public education, and he was the first to commission the great muralists, Orozco, Diego Rivera, Siqueiros, and he was very influenced by what he saw in California, where he was for quite some time. And these muralists got commissions in California. All three of them received important commissions in California. And I hope people will go out to Pomona College and see the great Arozzo Prometheus painting in the school dining hall. We're hoping that people will go to Scripps College and see the wonderful murals by Ramos Martinez, who had been the director of the most important art school in Mexico, but then he moved to California, spending some time in Santa Barbara, some time in Los Angeles, and he painted dozens of murals. People can go to the little chapel in Santa Barbara that is just outside the city, and we have a drawing in the show that was a study for that chapel. One thing I'd love to share with the listeners is Diego Rivera's Pan-American Unity. This was an enormous mural that was actually his last mural in the United States. The mural was commissioned for the GGIE, the Golden Gate International Exhibition, and it is devoted to the theme of Pan-American Unity, which, which for, oh my God, dozens of feet, he depicts the soulfulness, folk traditions, pre-Hispanic civilizations of the South with the mechanical ingenuity of the North. And you can go see this mural, which is now installed at the City College of San Francisco. Or if you can't go to San Francisco, you can see studies for the mural in the exhibition together with an iPad where we have each of the panels reproduced and you can just scroll through. Uh, this is a really good example of how the two cultures intersected. Diego Rivera was close friends with the San Francisco architect Timothy Pfluger. Pfluger was one of the art directors of the fair and invited him. Diego Rivera was having an affair with the American actress Paulette Goddard, as was his wife, Frida Kahlo. We have in the show a necklace that Frida Kahlo made for Paulette Goddard, which uses a beautiful pre-Hispanic 
Maya Jade figure. Diego Rivera also made jewelry for her. It's this interesting combination of commissions across the border, friendships across the border, love affairs across the border, and all against the background of political crises, where Diego Rivera was so anxious to get out of Mexico because he was afraid he was going to be assassinated as a former Trotskyite. There had already been attempts to assassin Leo Trotsky, who was living in Mexico at the time. He needed to get out of town and beg Timothy Pfluger to come up with a plan. So there are levels and levels and levels of interpretation and going back and forth across the border. And you don't have to unpack them all. You can just enjoy the beautiful mural or you can go down deep into political, romantic, friendship, stylistic influences and just keep going. You know, I think what you just described is kind of the narrative you just laid out is one of the really thrilling things about the show. It, it There's a tendency in, in both scholarship and in exhibition practice to focus on a single thing, whether that thing is art or architecture or decorative arts. And your show makes the argument that all of these things are inevitably and intensely bound up in each other in terms of how Mexican and California culture related to each other, really Western American culture related to each other. I have a couple more art things I want to go back to, but but let's hit architecture first. Are there one or two key buildings or projects that you think are good examples of how ideas bounced back and forth between California and Mexico? Yes, there are revival examples and there are modernist examples. And since we've been talking more about revival examples, let's jump to modernism. The last theme of the show is modernism and is devoted to showing how Mexican, both Mexican architecture and design influenced California and the other way around. And a great case study is Richard Neutra, for he himself was an emigre to California in the early 1920s. He was the first California architect to give a lecture in Mexico in 1937. He then developed friendships with Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. We have a lovely drawing in the show that he made at a Aztec site. Totally wild drawing. Yes, it's wonderful. Um, and you were talking earlier about geeking out in order to demonstrate Neutra's influence, which has not been sufficiently recognized. We have the great Mexican modernist and Pritzker Prize winner, Luis Barragan. We have his own copy translated into Spanish of Neutra's survival through design. And this is annotated in Barragan's own hand. So it's a very direct demonstration of the influence of the particular kind of California modernism that was influential in Mexico. It was one that was much more closely related to site, which is something that both Mexican architects and California ones shared. They didn't want 
the pure international style. They wanted something that was more local materials oriented and, as I mentioned, very specific to site. We have a case study in the exhibition where we show our own California case study houses, which was a very influential program by the magazine Arts and Architecture and its editor and publisher, John Intenza, who in 1945 wrote a manifesto in the magazine about how the new post-war homes had to be more democratically available, and that could be done by using modern materials, prefabrication, interchangeable parts, and that this was something that had influence far beyond the 30, I think it's 36, that were ultimately published in Arts and Architecture. This idea of floor-to-ceiling windows, indoor-outdoor living, using a more American-style floor plan, this was almost immediately adopted in Mexico. The same year that Intenza published his manifesto, 1945, Luis Barragan, together with some other people, developed a plan for the Jardín del Pedregal, which was the most important modernist development, and it's just outside Mexico City in a volcanic landscape that was fully exploited by the architects of the Pedregal to integrate these incredible rocks with the houses. It is an extraordinary example of regional modernism. Speaking of, of histories that are inextricable from each other, one of my favorite California mid-century sculptors is Ruth Asawa, and she's enjoying a bit of a resurgence in the last 15 years since I the Young Museum. I would say a bit is an understatement. Yeah, I mean, ever since, you know, it's about 15 years ago, the Young Museum hosted a retrospective of her work, and it's been one of the great rediscoveries in American art. But we think of, of Asawa as an Asian-American working in San Francisco as not having a lot to do with Mexico. You, you include her in the show and make the argument that we should think of her that way. Why? Well, very specifically, she learned those wire weaving techniques in Toluca. And she made two visits to Mexico City and other places in Mexico. The great mid-century designer Clara Porcet, who was Cuban-born but lived most of her life in Mexico, Azawa took a class with her, and Porcet had herself studied at Black Mountain, and she encouraged Ruth Azawa to do so as well. So there are all kinds of connections, and in this case, ones that are triangulated with Joseph Albers and, and Black Mountain. So the fact that Azawa learned her most signature technique, she, you know, she did beautiful drawings and other artwork as well, but she's most revered for this ethereal and beautiful 
sculptures which had their roots in very practical and utilitarian Mexican baskets. The show ends with another sculptural installation. It's a piece that I, upon entering the show, wondered if I was going to be seeing, and sure enough, there it was. It's a work by Ken Price. What is it, and why does it fit? Happy's Curios. And yeah, you can't, that that's part of our story, too. I mean, Ken Price is unusual in that he, he's an artist whose medium was ceramic, and he adored Mexican craftspeople. He did this series, Happy is the Name of His Wife, which is a testament to Mexican ceramics and just the whole idea of curios on display. The one in the show is not even the only one in Lackmas collection. We have a couple in the collection. So this is part of a whole series that he did. He's just one of many artists, designers, craftspeople who traveled to Mexico and found great inspiration as well as specific techniques from the people working there. Could we talk a little bit about the pre-Hispanic revivals? Sure, sure. Oh, good, because I, I feel that is another major contribution that we've made in an area that it's another area like the Spanish colonial where people think they know it because they they know they're familiar with the iconography without necessarily knowing the meaning behind the iconography. And and here, instead of having, is in most parts of the show, California influence in Mexico, Mexico influence in California. And here, it's pretty one way. California is just looking to Mexico, both as the other, both as the exotic past, as well as a, a way of having a more regional identity. And in Mexico, it was so critical to the formation of their national identity, just as their neo-colonial past was used to help forge a sense of identity after the Mexican Revolution. So too, for the first time after the revolution, the pre-Hispanic cultures were extolled and not considered backwards. And I, I love the fact that two images of Cuauhtémoc, who was the last emperor of the Aztec Empire, and one of them is before the revolution of 1883, and it was specially commissioned by the dictator Porfirio Diaz. And in it, Cuauhtémoc is just displayed as a neoclassical figure. Anybody who goes to Mexico will see him many, many feet high on the Paseo de Reforma. We have the maquette in the show. And the fact that before the revolution, anybody who was Aztec or Mayan was depicted as if they were European is very significant. After the revolution, they are depicted as indigenous people. Right opposite, we have Roberto Montenegro's portrait of Cuauhtémoc which was done for the Mexican pavilion 
at the fair in Rio de Janeiro in 1922. In Mexico, it's very important whether you're showing Zapotec revival or Aztec revival or Maya revival, they're specifically associated with regions. In California, we just had this happy, careless merging of all the various texts, whether Aztec, Mixtec, Toltec, Zapotec, because for us it was either a romantic evocation or this idea that the Americas produced a culture analogous and as important to classical culture. And that's how we were united north and south. And this was something that the American government promulgated with the good neighbor policy that started in 1933. That's why we have drawings from Disney's The Green That Built a Hemisphere, because during the war, it was especially important for the U.S. government to feel that the Latin American countries were on our side and not the fascist Nazi side. So the idea of promoting Pan-American unity and giving us a common heritage was incredibly important. So you see it in Walt Disney films. You see it at the San Diego 1935 fair where the federal building is in a Maya revival style. So for us, it's an interesting combination of romantic fantasies that you see in the Maya theater downtown Los Angeles or the Aztec hotel, but it's also part of a soft propaganda that the government is encouraging in the thirties and forties. Well, Wendy Kaplan, the show is great. And thanks so much for speaking with me. It's a great pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.